This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. The SEC's role influence accounting standards today has not always been the case in the decades leading up to our current circumstances. In fact, in the early days of the SEC, Chairman of the Commission believed the maintenance of accounting standards as a lesser task, believing regulation of the markets, broker-dealers, and enforcement all more important to the SEC's mission. That all began to change in 1963 when the SEC published its Special Study of Securities Markets, in which 556 over-the-counter companies were randomly selected and their accounting treatments reviewed. The study found that more than 25% of issuers provided no financial statements to their investors whatsoever, that a third of issuers selected did not provide any explanatory footnotes, and that 95% did not disclose remuneration of management. Further, of the 107 instances of fraud noted in the 18 months prior to the study's inception, 93% of those companies did not follow the continuous reporting requirements of the 1934 Act. Joel Seligman writes about this progression in his 1985 paper in the Journal of Comparative Business and Capital Market Law, titled The SEC and Accounting, A Historical Perspective. Professor Seligman summarizes the importance of accounting standards based on the 1963 special study, as well as other SEC research, as follows. Quote, This evidence pervasively illustrates that without a federal law or government agency mandating minimum standard disclosure requirements, voluntary disclosure practices would be less uniform, more likely to omit information material to investors, and more often employed in securities fraud." End quote. Much has changed in the financial markets and in the accounting industry since Professor Seligman's words in 1985. While the SEC still does not independently develop accounting standards, it utilizes its position and its resources to support both domestic and international accounting standards through its Office of the Chief Accountant, or OCA. We're lucky to have with us today Wes Bricker to help discuss the importance of accounting standards, their application in practice, their enforcement at the SEC, and what he sees as his next set of challenges facing the accounting profession today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. You know, a few weeks ago when we had Commissioner Crenshaw on the show, you joked that because we were talking about Reg BI, it was like my Super Bowl. And so I guess, I don't know, being like a good Buffalo kid, is this is this like your Stanley Cup? I mean, I mean we've got we've got Wes Bricker the, on the, the show. The Bills today. have made a few Super Bowls. We won't talk about the results, but yeah, this will definitely be a little bit more accounting focused than some of our previous episodes. Yeah, this is definitely one in the wonky bucket, uh, and, I, and I'm excited to get started. Um, but first, just a quick note for our Insecurities listeners. The Insecurities podcast has been nominated for a People's Choice Podcast Award, and we need your help. So please, please, before July 31st, if you will go to podcastawards.com, 
and vote for the Insecurities Podcast in the business category. We would really, really appreciate it. That's podcastawards.com and vote for us, Insecurities, in the business category. All right, as as I mentioned, as you mentioned, we are very fortunate to have Wes Bricker with us today on the show. He is another former high-ranking SEC official. He was the chief accountant at the SEC. He now serves as co-leader of Trust Solutions at PwC. Chris, I know you're going to give us the the download on his bio in just a second. Um, I'm going to give a, a quick rundown on some of the topics we're going to discuss. But first, Wes... Welcome to Insecurities. Well, thank you very much, Kurt. Thank you very much, Chris. It is wonderful to be with you. We've got a good conversation lined up. I know you have a unique and valuable perspective on the intersection of the accounting and securities regulatory worlds. And today we are going to pick your brain on a number of topics, really. Uh, We want to get a little bit of inside baseball on how the SEC's Office of the Chief Accountant works. We're going to hit on some perennial accounting hot topics and think a little bit about meme stock mania, SPACs, and, and ESG disclosures. And Along the way, maybe we'll figure out if we're doing any better on the reporting deficiencies Professor Seligman (laughs) noted back in 1985. Uh, Here's hoping. Chris, why don't you kick us off with a little background on Wes Yeah, uh, as Kurt, you mentioned, Wes Bricker currently serves as the vice chair of U.S. Trust Solutions as a co-leader in that space at PwC. In this role, he oversees the largest trust platform in the world at the firm, bringing together the firm's combined audit, ESG, digital assurance, and tax reporting capabilities to best help their clients as they seek to build trust with stakeholders. As co-leader, Wes is responsible for the quality of service, excellence in the work performed by over 21,000 partners and staff developing diverse teams and driving innovation at PwC. Wes served as the chief accountant at the Securities and Exchange Commission, where he advised the SEC on accounting and auditing matters and consulted with registrants, auditors, and other industry representatives, including the Financial Accounting Standards Board, FASB, and Kurt, your favorite, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB. Yes. But before, <laughs> both before and after his time at the commission, Wes has been a lifer at, at Pricewaterhouse PwC, starting as an intern in his college days and logging more than a decade as a partner in leadership roles with the firm. Uh, Wes, we're, we're happy to have you. A storied career, both on the, on the public and private side. But I want to note that you've actually spent a, a couple of different segments of your career with the SEC. First, as what's known as a professional accounting fellow for the Office of the Chief Accountant, and then in a variety of positions in the office itself until being named uh, as the Chief Accountant. And we always try to give our listeners a baseline on the inner workings of any of those nuanced divisions or offices at the SEC. And, and OCA is certainly near and dear to my heart, but maybe not as well known uh, to the broader industry. So can you walk us through the OCA structure and mission and, and how it works within the SEC and with other divisions and elements of the commission? Happy to, Chris. Uh, The chief accountant of the commission, of course, is the principal advisor to the commission. Someone needs to advise the commission on accounting, on audit, on ethics that apply to accountants uh, because of the importance of the numbers to our securities disclosure system. That's the chief accountant. And of course, the job is bigger than any one person. And so we have the office of the chief accountant. And within that office covers of course, accounting, not a surprise there. 
but also professional practice. That includes auditing, ethics, independence rules. There's also a group that looks after the international discussions because, of course, the numbers are produced by companies and divisions of companies spread all around the world uh, where the requirements, the local customs, the operating environment might vary. But what shouldn't vary is the quality of disclosure to investors. And so there's an international group that looks after that. It all comes together, of course, um, under the chief accountant to support uh, the advice to the commission on all things accounting and auditing matters. So Wes, you, you mentioned auditing ethics and independence rules, uh, you know, as, as a non-accountant, as the non-accountant on this, on this week. An important episode. counterweight to us, uh, Kurt. Right, exactly. It's, it's always kind of interested me. It's, it's always seemed like a little bit of a black box, actually, to figure out how accounting rules and guidance are updated, researched, accepted, implemented, enforced, etc. It just feels like there are a lot of players. Uh, the, you know, the SEC and the OCA, of course, but also the Association of International Certified Professional Accountants, the AICPA. Uh, we have the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB. There is the PCAOB, which you know Chris already talked a little bit about. We have the Center for Audit Quality, the CAQ, which uh, was actually a new one for me. This is an autonomous, non-partisan, non but uh, yeah, definitely yeah, a new yeah. player in the game. Yeah, uh, a, a public policy advocacy group um, that is dedicated to enhancing investor confidence and public trust in the global capital markets. I've undoubtedly missed some, but you know the, the point is that uh, there are a lot of regulators, quasi-regulators, and advocacy groups working together or not to shape accounting standards. So uh, Wes, tell us a, a little bit about how these organizations collaborate, how do they interact with the OCA um, to sort of lead the, the accounting profession and set standards? That was one of the first questions that I had as the chief accountant. What are all of the organizations? What are the relationships? Where do the agendas overlap or even at times conflict? And how do we better collaborate across the entire system to advance high quality reporting? Because doing so requires coordination. Doing so requires information flow and doing so requires communication. That was the basis for pulling together. Our listeners can't see what I'm holding in my hands, but it's a, it's a large chart, nearly six foot in length, that lays out the system working uh, with colleagues within the Office of the Chief Accountant. We laid out the nearly 50 different organizations and groups and agendas that comprise the financial reporting system. That's useful for everyone involved in financial reporting, whether it's an accountant, whether it's someone in business, whether it's a lawyer, whether it's a financial analyst, it's helpful to understand the system so that we can understand how to enhance and improve the system. The job at the SEC is to oversee the quality of disclosures coming into the marketplace. And the SEC, of course, relies on uh, many in the public sector as well as the private sector to make sure that system is working effectively. That blueprint 
of all of those organizations is available on the SEC's website. Uh, it's a blueprint or an overview of the financial reporting system. I promise you we're going to talk a little bit more about the blueprint later. That's really helpful to get a sense of you know, what the, uh, the Office of the Chief Accountant does, but also how you interact with some of the other organizations out there. Uh, evidently, there are at least 50. I definitely didn't tick off that many names. <laughs> we're not going to unpack all that today. I would actually like to pivot a little bit and, and talk about your, uh, your transition back into private practice. You know, as, as Chris mentioned, you started your career at PwC. You've done two tours at the SEC, and, and now you've come back out to, to PwC where you're in a, a leadership role at the firm. You know, when we met earlier this week to talk about the podcast, we actually talked a little bit about the, the so-called revolving door and how it may not actually be a bad thing, uh, at least for certified public accountants. And you told us a little bit on your view about the P, the, the public in CPA, and how that shapes the profession, whether you're in, in private practice or in government, and how it can have an impact on public confidence in, in our capital market. So will you unpack that a little bit for us? Accountants who are CPAs take on a responsibility to the public. It's the P in CPA, Certified Public Accountants. The public is the, uh, is the intended group that benefits from, from the work. In similar fashion, although different and broader, uh, the SEC's mission is very focused on the public interest. It's the public interest of uh, investor protection, capital formation, fairness, and efficiency within our markets. Those two travel in a parallel track. They're not the same, but they travel together with a focus on public mission and a public interest of high-quality, dependable, reliable information to enable the public to make better decisions. And so that's what we've talked about and how I've viewed uh, the importance of service in the private sector as well as the public sector. It's the importance of keeping in the forefront the P and CPA. I liken that to, to some of the time, Kurt, you referenced a little bit of that revolving door mentality. Sometimes attorneys uh, and accountants can get a bad rap for being a part of a rulemaking or an element that, that changes the landscape of the industry they're in, and then they'll retire or they'll go off and not have to deal with the implications of, of whatever new development just came through. And, and Wes, your time with, the, with OCA more recently kind of sits pretty neatly in a very big sea change element in, in our accounting history, at least in the past 25 years. We've had one very significant and two other uh, pretty large efforts to update our, our accounting guidance. The first being revenue recognition. Uh, I can hear the young staff auditors listening out there groan when I say 606. Uh, they know it well. They're learning it as they go. Uh, Lease is 842 uh, is another one that's really changed the game in the past few years. And then CESOL, or current expected credit losses, has been another large piece of guidance that has been developed over kind of your 2014, 2015 through the current time. And, and I applaud you for not only, you know, changing the game from a revenue recognition perspective when you were at OCA, but now... You're back out in private practice dealing with the clients who have to figure out which end is up with 606. So I want to unpack a little bit kind of that standard setting process and revenue recognition update discussions were happening in the late aughts, you know, back in the two, late 2000s 
uh, before being officially proposed and pronounced in, in the 2014 timeframe with significant amounts of, of public comment and effort going into a 2018. But how did you see that large effort from OCA's perspective in really changing revenue, one of the more basic tenets of, of financial statements and accounting through that time period? For most companies, top line revenue is one of their most important measures. And so the quality of the standards that underpin the preparation of a revenue number there's been a really important uh, discussion. Revenue has been important to companies uh, for a long time, whether in the public markets or in the private markets. And what we had for a number of years was fragmented standards. It was fragmented between domestic companies in the US and their international counterparts. It was fragmented by industry. It was fragmented by transaction type. There was no unifying common set of principles that would apply across all companies and in most markets. And that's what we set to do as accountants over a long period of time, is to develop a set of principles that had a unifying characteristic to them. And so as I served as chief accountant, we were at the stage of that process of implementing or overseeing the implementation of those standards. And I was especially focused on communicating expectations, the expectation of diligence and understanding what the standards require, but also open communication on technical issues. For example, the FASB as an accounting standard setter and the international accounting standard setter had technical discussions with cameras turned on so that practitioners could understand what the deeper issues are and how reasonable minds might view those tough issues. And that helped raise the, the consistency of application and interpretation on tough issues. That was a way of illustrating to investors and other stakeholders that the profession was up to the task of advancing the quality of reporting, even on some of the hardest, most focused on measures like revenue. It demonstrated that we could do it and then gave us um, as a system a bit of momentum to take on some of the other issues like implementation of lease accounting, implementation of current expected credit losses, all of which are tough, decades-long issues and debates about the best way to inform investors about a lease contract or credit losses. There are a variety of ways that you could do that, but our job was to find a generally accepted way of doing it. And it's not that there aren't other ways that it could be done, but we had to land on one. And so the discussion we had was really about how to bring that into the system so that investors would understand the content being reported and companies could uh, more consistently apply it. You're sort of uh, actually hinting at a maybe philosophical question that we have kicked around on the Insecurities podcast on several episodes, including with Commissioner Crenshaw and with Commissioner Purse. And that is sort of like getting the balance right when it comes to rulemakings or, or setting standards or or you know, guidance, um, whether that is for 
public issuers, accountants, or other registrants. And it, it usually comes down to this concept of prescriptive versus principles-based rulemaking. Because on some level, what we want to do is give regulated entities flexibility, right? Because there, there can't be a one-size-fits-all model. Not everything can be prescribed in a rule or guidance, but, but you do need to have some guardrails, um, and, and it sounds like you were grappling with those issues as you were working with your counterparts at other at other agencies and organizations to come up with the right balance. Putting on your your regulator's hat for a second, you know, do you think that one model is more effective, principles based or prescriptive? And then, you know, the follow up question would be: Do you feel differently now that you're back in private practice? It's a great question, Kurt. Practitioners balance clarity of principles and specificity of requirements all the time. I view it as an and rather than an or. I think you need both. And it's in developing both clear principles, but also uh, clear interpretive guidance that the practice of accounting or, or disclosure professionals is able to more consistently produce disclosure that's useful and to do so with the confidence that it can be relied upon and used um, in a way consistent with both the spirit and the letter of the rules. So I view it as an and rather than an or. I think in many cases, uh, standards and regulation lags practice or lags innovation, innovation in uh, different transactions types, uh, innovation in different corporate structures, innovation in uh, different investment strategies. That a regulator first observes what's happening in practice and then decides whether and when and how to intervene. Inherently, mm -hmm. it is a lagging process. And so what I focused on, both in public practice as well as private, is on making sure there's clear communication from the private sector to the public sector so that there's clarity of where things are moving, where practice is developing, and whether regulations and standards are lagging and by how much. And that helps standard setters and regulators to decide how to deal with the gap between the current standard and current practice. You can deal with that gap by having a speech. You can deal with that gap by um, having a new rule, a new proposal, a new opinion. There are many different ways, but it all starts with good communication. Yeah, I think we're actually struggling with that in several areas right now outside of the accounting space but in more traditional securities regulatory issues and that you know that's cryptocurrencies right where i think the sec is probably lagging what's happening in industry and you have people like hester purse who who really want to come up with uh, a flexible I'll, I'll use the word flexible approach to cryptocurrencies and then there there are others that I think want to pump the brakes a little bit and and figure it out but there hasn't been a ton of guidance right we had the Dow report and there have been some enforcement actions that involve 
I mean, pretty obvious misconduct, save a couple that maybe are, you know, that are marginal. I, I think the same is also true with some of the innovation that we're seeing in the fintech space and, and the delivery of investment advisory services. And I was talking to someone recently about, you know, whether the SEC in particular is in more of a reactive posture or a proactive posture, um, because I think that it's not clear anymore what firms or platforms are what, you know, is it a broker? Is it making a recommendation? I don't know. Is it really an advisor? There's this huge gray space that is occupied largely by fintech platforms. But again, we're not getting a ton of guidance. And and I think that that ultimately leads to cries about regulation by enforcement when you're not giving you know, indicators to the market about how you're thinking about it or what they might expect to happen. That same dynamic comes up in accounting and disclosure. The difference between what might be desired and what might be required. That's an important discussion for practitioners and regulators to have. They have a regular discussion. As chief accountant, I spent a lot of time in meetings at conferences or uh, sitting, observing discussions at the FASB or setting in advisory groups with the PCOB or traveling internationally. Those discussions are essential to calibrating where regulation or interpretation should change. But equally, there's an important piece I believe for standard setters and regulators to understand the assumptions that are underlying the regulations that are currently on the books, because those assumptions change over time. The assumptions about how the information is being used, the assumptions about uh, where the markets are moving, take something that is well-documented, like this shift from active investment strategies, active investment managers to passive ones. That shift is a significant change that informs the assumptions that should underlie accounting and reporting. What is the information set, for example, that an index publisher would need to have in assembling an index? And is it the same as the information set that a fundamental analyst would need in uh, setting a, a price on a security. Does financial statements need to serve both? That's an important question. Now, of course, financial statements are general purpose in their design, their general purpose in their objective. But the composition of users change over time and the assumptions uh, that they make about how those statements are being used will change over time. That's why progress and a forward-looking orientation toward doing this together uh, is so essential. That makes a lot of sense. And and it's actually sort of a good pivot to start thinking about some of the issues we're seeing in the market today, whether that relates to uh, accounting um, in the SPACs sphere or thinking about ESG. And so that's, that's what we want to talk about next. Let's pause and talk a little bit about what's going on in the markets today in 2021. And, and I haven't checked the stock market performance today, but 
But God knows which way certain stocks have been moving today and the hundreds of percentage points up and down in terms of the way the market's been treating recently. We've been using this phrase meme stock mania throughout uh, the first half of 2021. Uh, it got significant media coverage and also you know, a lot of attention from our friends on Capitol Hill and in uh, the legal and regulatory space. And, and Wes, you actually penned an article on LinkedIn back in March talking about you know, some of the, the terms that were getting thrown around back in that time period of market manipulation, you know, in the financial markets. And I think the jury is still out on, on how meme stock trading has, has been treating over the time period. But how do you see that dramatic change in stock price, you know, impact the market, uh, you know, market capitalization figures and financial reporting uh, in today's environment? The meme stock uh, discussion is a really important one, as we've had as a as a country as a capital market system uh, over time. And I know there's a number of folks looking at those issues. On the accounting and reporting, it, it gets back to the importance of high quality information into the markets. But uh, what's interesting about the meme stock discussion is the extreme short term timeframe uh, that, that comes into play, that nanoseconds matter seconds or days or uh, several days matter to the investment trading strategy or the role of momentum behind a particular stock or a particular type of strategy. So we, we have on, on the one hand with mean stocks, extreme short-termism. And then in a different discussion, which we're also having in today's market, we're having very long-term discussions around ESG. And we talk about commitments that might be uh, net carbon neutral in 2050. Those long-term milestones, those long-term targets and short-term really reflect a significant expansion of, of the extremes within our markets. That's the work of all of us as accountants, as disclosure professionals, as market professionals to understand, one, how the system is working, but two, to understand uh, whether there need to be changes in the design of the system, whether there need to be changes in the nature of information within the system. And, and so uh, it's that, out, that bias toward uh, an outward view of understanding the market and then having important but sometimes uncomfortable discussions about areas where uh, the system should be changed. It seems to me, too, Wes, that you know, there's been a conversation in the financial reporting world for, say, the past 15 years about the quarterly reporting cycle. And that being, again, to, to summarize a very complex issue, that being management's focus is let's make our target for Q2, Q3, and we'll worry about the problems later. Obviously, on the bad side, the work that, that I do is looking at those folks who maybe make poor choices and, and misrepresent reality in making those numbers. Uh, but this it seems even unhinged from performance, right, to a certain degree, is it's, uh, you know, Kurt and I laugh about uh, the Wall Street Bets Reddit uh, discussions, but let's get the stock price as high as we can 
seems even devoid of that that kind of almost short-term accounting and financial reporting goal perspective. So I, I, that wasn't really a question, just more of a commentary on what we're dealing with. It seems to be a little bit detached from the standard, hey, let's pull some sales forward or let's call that customer back so that we can hit our target and, and make sure that that happens this quarter. This is just, a, like I said, a little unhinged from, from the reality from a financial reporting perspective. One of the assumptions that sometimes is made is that there's a cause and effect relationship between disclosure by a company and price discovery in the market, that there's a cause and effect. And what momentum trading would suggest to us is that the cause of price discovery or price changes is not company disclosure. It's disclosure by others outside of the company. Now, it's possible those individuals could be insiders as well, but the complexity of who's making disclosure with an effect on stock price is one of those challenging issues uh, for further analysis and uh, consideration of how to best achieve the system that, that we want going forward. Yeah, disclosure by emoji is probably where we should draw the line on what uh, what is relevant and material information from a financial reporting perspective and what might be a, a rumor and, and conjecture afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Plain English uh, writing handbook uh, could perhaps be updated. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's interesting because that conversation plays in with another hot topic where I, I think there are there are questions about what is driving investor interest in particular investment opportunities and you know what is being disclosed to the market and are, are people paying attention to the fundamentals and and that of course is the SPACs market uh, it has been a big topic over the last year or so uh, and in fact Chris and I in our last episode we did a deep dive on SPACs talking about some of the issues in the regulatory landscape we actually didn't do uh, much around some of the technical accounting treatments that that uh, affect SPACs or the SPACs market. But we did talk about some of the SEC's warnings about accounting for warrants, among other things. Um, and those warnings really seem to have chilled the SPACs market. Uh, just to set the stage, this was from uh, an article in the LA Business Journal just a few weeks ago. Quote, the sizzling SPAC market has hit a cold stretch. After nearly two years of unprecedented activity, the volume of initial public offerings through special purpose acquisition companies slowed dramatically in late spring. Although several reasons have been floated for the cool down, most industry experts point to an accounting change by federal securities regulators as the primary factor, end quote. So I think the question really is, do, do accountants always ruin everything? No, no. <laughs> I think the question is, from an accounting perspective, how should we be thinking about SPACs? What are the issues and, and what are we going to see bubble up? you know, going forward. Wes, feel free to jump in with any lawyer jokes you want to tell too, right? You could, oh, come on. We're tired It's a two-way street. <laughs> <laughs> well, the article talked about sizzle. Accountants certainly bring sizzle to any cocktail party. But um, <laughs> I, what, what, I, what I would say about uh, accounting, whether it's uh, the financial statements for a special purpose acquisition company or, or a, comb a business combination or any other uh, company, 
this discussion reinforces the relevance of accounting and the importance of high quality reporting in our disclosure-based system. That, that uh, from time to time, the numbers and, and the integrity in the numbers hits newspapers. It's infrequent in its nature because ordinarily, accounting and disclosure works very well. And it's newsworthy when it doesn't. So maybe it's the optimistic side of me. Uh, but, I, but I will say I'd rather have a system where it's newsworthy because it's not working in a particular moment, because I wouldn't want it to be assumed uh, that accounting is low quality and, and, and not notable. Across the board, financial reporting has been improved over time through uh, the very active work of the SEC standard setters and private practitioners. Uh, there was significant change within the U.S. reporting system from the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which has been embedded across nearly every function in our financial reporting system, from the accountability of management for good process and controls and reporting and certifications to independent oversight of audit committees to the quality of uh, auditors and the regulation of the audit services that are delivered into the marketplace. Those changes have buttressed it, the quality of reporting. And I guess I would focus on uh, a good balance of how quality has improved over time, but it's clear there's still more work to do. There's still more work to do, whether it's SPACs or others, to reinforce the quality and relevance of our system. Well, Kurt, it's time to talk about one of my favorite topics, maybe the the accounting version of Reg BI, although I think it's a little bit more broad than, than just that. I, those are big shoes to fill, my friend. <laughs> I'll go more general than a specific rulemaking, but KPIs, <laughs> you know, Wes, Wes and I are both huge fans of of key performance indicators, their, their relevance to the- Wait, hold on, hold on. Are these KPIs or KPIs? What's it? They're, they're, we've talked about this before. Always muddying the waters, Kurt. We're staying on task here. <laughs> indicating key performance. We're IKPs. I don't know. We'll, we'll switch the acronym around. So, you know, financial reports are long ever since, uh, you know, we started adding explanatory footnotes, which again, hopefully all the accountants out there are laughing at, at the, broad, <laughs> the broad paperwork that comes in at the, bio, the bottom half of your financial statements. KPIs are really, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a shorthand that's used by the markets to understand performance and things like top line revenue or adjusted EBITDA, kind of all of these elements come out in a variety of ways, some operational as well in terms of headcount or eyeballs as a famous one from the dot-com era. Uh, and they've really gotten a lot of attention over you know, their, their general discussion point. Uh, Wes, you've spoken recently about the importance of integrity in, in KPI specifically, especially with this continuing drumbeat of ESG, not only on the Insecurities podcast, but also across our financial market. So talk to us a bit about where you see integrity and its role in KPI financial reporting, uh, as well as with an ESG lens. Key performance indicators are critical to the overall disclosure profile of company, company performance, their prospects, their, uh, their cash flows. They supplement good financial reporting. They don't supplant it, but they do supplement it. And, and so it follows uh, that 
We need to have good integrity in those numbers. What does that mean? That means consistency period over period or good disclosure where there has been changes. Good disclosure if there are corrections to previously issued numbers. Good disclosure of healthy performance indicators uh, connect with uh, gap reporting, uh, for example, in uh, non-gap presentations. As I've talked about this both in my former role and much more currently, ESG and KPIs sort of walk hand to hand. One of the uh, areas uh, very recently that uh, the SEC has asked for input on is ESG. And uh, specifically around the environmental aspects of ESG. So, for example, a a company that has made a commitment to be net carbon neutral um, in, say, 2040 or 2050. Well, it's probably not good practice to just wait until 2040 or 2050 to let people know whether or not you have achieved that target because the markets have a thirst for more current information. They want to understand whether a company is on track or not, what the implications are for the CapEx budget, the implications for the operating expense budget. Is there sufficient capital resources or liquidity to fund those changes in order to achieve the target? And so we get into milestones, reporting of key performance indicators. Are we on track or not? What is the feedback that management needs um, or wants or How's the board thinking about it? So that's the intersection of KPIs and ESG. I think it's it's an important area, particularly for uh, disclosure practitioners to understand and connect those dots because it all travels in the direction of high quality uh, KPIs that uh, the marketplace is using to understand company prospects. I like that uh, the way you framed it, Wes, and that it's not a binary issue that you just on January 1st of 2050, hurrah, we're carbon neutral. And and you were silent for the past uh, 25 or so years. Um, that's a great way to kind of think about how that consistent and repeated um, acknowledgement of either success in that area or the need to improve based on the, the company's uh, original prognostication uh, is helpful from a KPI perspective. Yeah, Chris, I, I think of disclosures that different industry groups uh, provide. For example, biotechs provide a disclosure uh, about how they've raised capital today uh, in order to develop um, a molecule or a formula or a medical device uh, sometime in the future. Uh, that they've raised capital today um, against a scientific promise of, of tomorrow. And what our disclosure system provides for investors in that case is periodic reporting Mm -hmm. about the material developments in the business. I think the ESG discussion follows in parallel uh, or uh, parallel to many of those uh, aspects that it, it can be quite useful for the marketplace to understand how companies are making progress on the commitments and the targets that they've set. All right, guys, I I have to say, again, as the non-accountant here on the podcast, I appreciate you keeping this at a pretty high level. I, you know, I, I think I got all of it. I was worried early on when Chris started talking about 606 
didn't know how this was going to go. But uh, what, what I want to do is just pull back even even a little bit more and just talk about a couple broader topics. Um, you know, Wes, we like to have a little bit more of a of a fun or a lighter segment at the end of our podcast. And so we're going to get into that now. And actually, what I'd like to talk about first is some changes that have been going on for you and for PwC. Uh, you know, in my role as an attorney, I am often involved in matters where there are accounting firms, you know, either across the table from us or sometimes working with us to figure something out. There are lots of divisions, you know, audit, tax, consulting, advisory, forensics. Uh, but at the end of the day, I feel like the firms kind of offer the same services or, or they're, they're, they sort of have a similar menu. And to be fair, that's true of law firms too. Um, but PwC has recently gone through a, a reorganization. And one of the things that came out of that was a new uh, practice group, maybe I'm probably not using the right nomenclature, but a new practice group called Trust Solutions. And you are one of the co-leaders of the Trust Solutions group here in the U.S., um, that sounds way cooler than most of the titles I've heard at accounting firms. It's uh, pretty cool. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's it's even cooler than um, Chris's sort of self. He, he has labeled himself the fresh co-host here on the, uh, yeah, on the I'm podcast. not the wonky one, Kurt. I'm the okay. fresh one. You've got all the Come on, wonkiness. Six, 606 KPIs. <laughs> we'll let, let the listeners be just. Anyway, so you are the new co-leader of Trust Solutions. Tell us a little bit about the restructure. Tell us about what Trust Solutions does and, and what your role will entail. Thank you, Kurt. So at PwC, um, we start with strategy. We looked at our, our strategy and we started with, with what's happening in the marketplace. And what we see it is big changes impacting um, all of our clients, all of our stakeholders um, to whom we are providing services. That's what we started uh, by. Um, that's what we started with in developing um, a refreshed strategy, which we call the new equation. It looks at uh, the importance of understanding our clients and our clients' stakeholders, understanding their expectations, and putting that at the center of the work that we do, whether it's understanding uh, a taxpayer or a tax authority, understanding an investor, an investment strategy, an investment regulator, or a capital markets regulator, whether it's understanding our client, its board, its management team. It starts with that outside orientation. As we did that, we refreshed our strategy. And of course, an operating model brings to life a strategy. And so as we looked at our operating model, we uh, reshaped it to focus on two fundamental concepts, building trust and delivering sustained outcomes. Trust is on decline generally uh, across society. and Sustained outcomes uh, for many businesses is in short supply. We think our services should contribute to both. And, and so as we uh, developed our, our operating segments, uh, we developed trust solutions and consulting solutions. Those uh, distinctions are relevant because of the difference in services that are, that are conveyed uh, through each of those. Trust solutions is focused on uh, services where the buyer and the consumer of the service may in fact be 
different parties. Think about an audit report, which is issued uh, to the board and to stockholders. Or on the consulting solution side, where the buyer and the consumer may in fact be the same party. So the distinction is in who's consuming the service, what are their expectations, what are their needs, and then how can we serve them? We're really excited about uh, trust solutions and consulting solutions and the way it helps us then focus on the needs in the marketplace with new areas, areas like ESG and the number of, of developments that are occurring from strategy to business transformation, all the way to reporting and the transparency that investors need and the confidence that investors need that the numbers are reliable. So Trust Solutions helps us focus on that. And I have the privilege of leading uh, Trust Solutions with Catherine Kaminsky. And we, we both serve as co-leaders. It sounds like you've won over at least one attorney, Wes, with the new, the new strategy and the new branding. And, and that's and that's really kind of a, a reflection. I remember the AICPA came out maybe back in 2005, six time period with moving away from being accountants and, and serving as trusted business advisors, you know, to, to rise above the level of the spreadsheet. And this obviously is that really put in practice at, at what is arguably the largest accounting firm in, across the globe. I'm sure the headcount and revenue numbers change on a, on a daily basis. Again, another uh, promotional point for integrity and reporting. But, you know, it's good to see that kind of reflection of the market being embodied in, in what you guys do. And, you know, I'm sure someone's patting themselves on the back from the marketing perspective and saying we should call it trust solutions because because that is a little bit cool, a little bit cooler than audit and tax and and cool nicknames. Wes have been around with you throughout your career. Uh, you referenced a little bit earlier the uh, uh, the document you held up here on the video that we will we'll share with our listeners. And in the show notes uh, you presented with with your team when you were at OCA, uh, what has been called the Bricker Blueprint. Uh, the the most robust and, and well-presented analysis of all of the different players, roles, documents, uh, internationally and domestically that play in the, in the financial reporting system. I like to tell people it's half an IT networking diagram and half a, a Banksy street masterpiece. So, Wes, tell us a little bit more about where the, the Bricker Blueprint came from and, and who your artistic influences are, uh, if you can name them, in developing that that beautiful piece of work. They will all remain nameless, but I do have to uh, especially thank uh, Dr. Yang Compton, uh, who I worked very closely with uh, at the SEC at the time. I continue to work uh, very closely with her. She and I spent a lot of time and a few weekends putting post-it notes up in a spare office uh, at the SEC as we mapped out um, all of the different organizations and the relationships that one has with the other, because that's what we were really trying to depict, both the organization, its function, and the relationships that one has with the other. The reason that's so useful for practitioners and the general public to understand is that they can understand the basis for their confidence in the quality of reporting produced by that system but they can also understand how to participate and provide input into the system uh, so that the system continues to adjust and meet current expectations, which are always on the move. Expectations management is something that I, I know we all first learn at home 
whether it's the expectations of a parent, a partner, a spouse, kids, expectations always change. The financial reporting system is no different. We have to understand expectations, but then also understand how to bring those expectations in and produce change. The blueprint helps us do that. I think it's a great way to sort of round out your your comments here today. I like thinking about this in terms of expectations because it applies across the board. You know, whether you're thinking about the the principles or the guidance for, you know, financial reporting and disclosure or, you know, whether we're just thinking about the structure and how things work. It's uh, it's a great final thought. So thanks for that, Wes. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Wes Bricker of PwC. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. For those of you who go out and vote for us in the podcast awards under the business category, I cannot guarantee that your name will be entered into a drawing to win a signed full-size copy of the Bricker Blueprint. Uh, We're still in discussions with the author if that's possible, but please check out the podcast awards. If you like what you listen to, give us a good rating and and nominate us to, to be considered for that. So as always, everybody, be well, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.